0: okay if you can draw your conversations to a close um many of you may not be familiar with the face of nathaniel so here it is uh nathaniel nathaniel is uh, based at our 502 ashley road site um regularly up there with the guitar in his hand but he, he is preaching uh, here this morning uh, and then on at 502 as well so um let's give our warmest loudest Alder Road, welcome to Mr Nathaniel Hobby. Thank you so much. I must admit, I didn't quite expect to be this sweaty this early, Uh, but Dan's really got us hopping and jumping, and... He's really helped me to get that out of my system, so I'm grateful. Now, this morning we're going to be preaching from uh, Revelation, I'm going to be preaching from Revelation 5. Okay, so if you want to find a Bible, that's where we're going to be this morning. And I'm so excited to preach uh, from Revelation 5 for a couple of reasons. First of which is uh, few, about eight weeks ago at church, I was at the Ashley Road site, and I really felt God lead me to this verse and lead me to, to want to bring it. So I found the verse, I got myself all ready. I was just about to, to stand up and, and read it out and then Matt said, right, that's the end. We're going to stop now and we're going to do the news. And I was like, oh, I was was ready to bring it. Um, And ever since these last eight weeks, I've just not been able to get this verse out of my head. And every time I've opened my Bible, I've found myself straight at these verses and I've been so inspired by them over the last eight weeks that I'm really hoping you'll be inspired by them this morning as well. The other reason I'm excited to bring it is because Revelation is one of my favorite books of the Bible. If you're allowed to have a favorite, I just love how descriptive it is about Jesus and about heaven. And that's where we're going to be this morning. But, firstly, I wanted to share one thing with you that I thought you might find helpful. Because I also like to watch a lot of movies and read a lot of books. And one thing that I've observed in my entire movie-watching career to date is that there seems to be a bit of a pattern about creating a hit movie or creating a hit book. I'll call it our rule of one this morning, the rule of one. But here is what I mean. Because every hit movie, every hit... uh, Every hit book tends to have this one person, one thing, one hero that the entire plot centers around. And that's what makes the hit movie. I've got some examples here for you. Lord of the Rings is all centered around the one ring, that one ring. And if you're into Lord of the Rings, it's great because you've got to watch 10 or 12 hours of epic journeys that they go on with this ring. And if you hate Lord of the Rings, then surely you're bored to tears as somebody's made you sit through the entire thing just to find out that a small bloke throws it in a mountain at the end. What a waste of time. But Harry Potter's another one. There's a prophecy in Harry Potter that says there's only one person. There's only one person that can save us from evil. There's only one person that can bring down the evil Lord Voldemort. If you're into your Star Wars, then you'll know that there's supposed to be a chosen one who brings balance to the force. Uh, Our preach title this morning is there can be only one. And if you've ever seen the movie Highlander, that's the most famous Uh, quote from, from that movie. There can be only one, and it's all about the one warrior who can kind of defeat evil. And even in Disney's The Lion King, only Simba can save Pride Rock, okay? So no matter what the movie is, there's always this kind of one thing or one person that the entire book or movie centers around. And it's quite helpful to think of Revelation in similar terms because Revelation is full of amazing imagery about God, about heaven, about Jesus, about scrolls and beasts and angels and thrones, and it is amazing to read it. But if we get caught up in all of that minute detail, sometimes we can miss the bigger picture. Okay, so this morning we're going to be looking at Revelation 5 and we're going to look at some of that little detail because it's in there and it's really helpful that it's there and it's helpful to help us understand, but Revelation has a lot of imagery in it, okay? Not all of it is meant to be literal. There's a lot of imagery, which means that we need to be keeping thinking to that bigger picture, that rule of one, that one person. So as we're reading, it's important to think, who's our hero? Where's this one person going to come? What does this story center around? So. Jumping into Revelation a little bit, Revelation 1 starts with an open heaven. The writer John, he sees this picture of heaven opened, and that's what we see in Revelation 1. And he gives us a bit of description. Then in Revelation 2 and 3, we get a little bit specific, and he starts writing to churches. Churches mainly based in and around uh, Rome and and the areas that we'll have been familiar with in the Bible. Giving advice to to churches in, in and around that area. And then in chapters 4 and 5, we come straight back to the throne room of God. And that's where we are this morning. We're straight here in the throne room of God. So, are we ready? Let's start uh, reading. It's on page 732, if you you haven't found it yet, okay? We're just going to read verses down to uh, the end of verse 4 to start off with, okay? It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Okay, so we'll stop you there. Our first bit of detail is this scroll. Let me tell you a little bit about this scroll to start off with because... Uh, this scroll is very important to our story this morning, and luckily, Revelation talks a lot about this scroll, which means we know an awful lot about about it, okay? So this scroll has got seven seals, and in the chapters to follow in Revelation, every time a seal is broken, one of God's judgments is revealed, uh, for the earth. So every time a a seal is open, we know a little bit more about its contents. So if you want a succinct answer to what this scroll is, basically it contains God's plan for earth, God's plan for the end of humanity, the judgments that will fall on the earth as a result of sin, and the establishment of God's eternal government and rule. We've got our Bible. Genesis is the beginning of the story. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If Genesis is the beginning, Revelation is the end. It's the last book. It talks all about the end. And this scroll has the plan for the end of the story. Okay? So that's basically what this scroll is. But like I said, don't miss the bigger picture here. We can get caught up in scrolls and things this morning. But we've got to keep thinking, where's this hero going to come in? Because that's who they're looking for. They've got, this, they've got to this point in Revelation where they're saying, well, who's worthy to take this scroll? Who's worthy to, to open it, to look into it, to look what it says? And actually, this scroll without actions is just words. And they need somebody to take this scroll and turn those words into actions. Who's good enough? Who's good enough? Who's that one person from our big picture story who can take it on and do it for us? Now, let me take a step back just quickly and give you a little bit bigger picture of what's going on here. In Revelation 4, we have this amazing scene of worship, a little bit like we've been doing this morning. The whole of heaven is singing and giving glory to God, and it's this amazing picture. And if you imagine it, it must be ear-splitting. It must be deafening. You've got this amazing picture of everyone in heaven, and they're giving glory to God, and they will have been singing and clapping and shouting and jumping and hopping and searching and whatever else we did in our our, uh, song this morning. But all of that would have been going on, and it would have sounded massive. It's almost like um, the closest thing I can liken it to is going to a football ground when a goal goes in and everybody roars and they kind of high-five and they hug each other and they're really excited. We used to live in Manchester and I used to go to watch Manchester United play once or twice and there's 75,000 people in that stadium. Imagine the noise when a goal goes in. Everyone cheers, everybody screams. There's this amazing, massive, big picture and then all of a sudden, in Revelation 5, we get to this point where it's like somebody presses pause on the on the TV. Okay, so you've got all of this praise erupting in heaven. Everything's going so well. Everybody's worshipping, ear splitting noise, and then pause. John Hosey has written a book. Here it is. Sorry. I put that picture in just for Matt so we can see his dad when I go and preach at 502 in a minute. But uh, John Hosea, for those who don't know, is, is Matt's dad. He's an elder down at Citygate, and he's written a great book on Revelation. It's called The Lamb, the Beast, and the Devil, and it's there. And in it, he says, at this point, heaven and the entire universe holds its breath. Heaven and the entire universe holds its breath because they're searching for that hero. They're searching for that one person who's worthy enough to take God's plan and put it into action. That's what's going on here. Heaven and the entire universe holds its breath. And it's such a stark contrast to go from the ear-splitting noise of Revelation 4 to the pause of Revelation 5. And there's one way that I want us to try and, and evidence it this morning, and it involves a little bit of audience participation, I'm afraid. And luckily, Dan's already warmed you up, okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to pretend that we're at that football ground, okay? We're going to pretend that goal's gone in. I'll count one, two, three, and then we're all going to stand up, cheer, clap, applaud. If you like high-fiving, this is a totally appropriate moment to do that. You can hug whatever it is that you want. But we're going to make that ear-splitting noise this morning. I'm going to ask you to lay your Britishness aside and join me as we stand and as we shout, okay? I'm so sorry about your child. Um, But we're going to make this noise, and then I'll do this and we'll stop, okay? So whatever it is that's going to make you make that noise, Dan, maybe you've baked a bread that is so good that Great British Bake Off gets cancelled because they eat this bread and think there's no way that we can ever find a bread better. Les, it might be that AFC Bournemouth score that winning goal and they win the Premier League. Whatever it is this morning that's going to make you stand up, jump, shout, and clap, I'll say one, two, three, we'll do it, and then when I go like that, we'll stop. Okay, you ready? One, two, three. Yes! Yeah! Come on! Yes! 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 Uh, And then we've got our silence, okay? Do you want to try it one more time? You ready? One, two, three, go! Yeah! Come on! Yes! Yeah! Stop! Okay. And that's a little bit like the silence that might have been experienced, okay? Take that and times it by a million, and that is what's going on. They get to this point of sobering judgment, of sobering uh, uh, dread, where they realize... Hold on, who is worthy enough to open this scroll? Heaven and the entire universe holds its breath. And the true realisation of what's going on here actually causes the writer John to weep. Because if we can't see the end of God's plan, if we can't get in this scroll, if nobody's worthy to open it, then how will God's kingdom come on earth? How will his rule be established? How will the mess that we see going on around us right now ever be redeemed if we can't get to the end of our story? How does it ever get any better than it is right now? You see, without a hero, without a chosen one, without that one person from our big picture, this whole story falls flat, okay? In some senses, Christianity falls flat if we don't have our hero, right? And... um, I wonder if you've ever had that moment of dread, that moment where you're just so totally afraid of what's about to happen. You get a lump in your throat, you get the cold sweats, you kind of feel your heart beating your chest, that moment of sobering fear. I remember once, just after I passed my driving test, I was 17 years old, and I thought I was amazing at driving, okay? I thought I had it all figured out. Um, My mate used to race cars for a living, and he'd give me a couple of tips, and I was like, okay, well, now I know what I'm doing, I'm fine. So me and my friends, we all pile into my car one day. It was my mum and dad's old Renault Clio. We pile in the car, go to Little Down to go and play football. Finish playing football, pile back in the car. I'm a safe driver, so I look around, make sure nothing's coming. The coast is clear. So I, I set the foot on reverse, and back I go, straight back. Turn in the car as I go. Now, my parents aren't in the room, so I will tell you, I might have been reversing a little bit quicker than one usually ought to. But as I turned and I spun the car, I went smash! right into a really small black bollard that you totally couldn't see from the rearview mirror. And it was dark as well, so I had really no hope of seeing this thing. It was tiny. But then, that moment of dread set in. I was like, I'm going to have to tell my parents. My dad's going to kill me. They're going to make me pay for it. That fear set in, right, and the cold sweats. So I got the lump in my throat. had to phone up my dad. Dad, I'm so sorry. I didn't see it. It was dark. And, you know, I just had that, that dread. Well, that dread that I felt in that moment pales in comparison to this moment here. And for the writer John, it was actually a matter of life and death. John was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He was actually the last surviving disciple. All of the others had been crucified or beheaded or killed in any number of gruesome ways. And he was the last one left. And he's about 100 when he writes this. And he's already been exiled to the Greek island of Patmos, And it's there that he sees this vision and that he writes Revelation. And he'll have been only too aware of what was going on in the Christian world at the time. As the elder statesman in the church, as he was, he'll have been getting stories and letters all about what's going on in other churches. He'll have heard of Christians being martyred. He'll have heard of churches not doing so well. He'll have heard of corruption in the churches. He'll have have heard of governments trying to squash churches down and try and stop Christianity spreading. And it's in that context that he's writing this. So when he's thinking who's worthy enough to put God's plan into action, who's worthy enough to see God's kingdom established forever on earth, that's what he's thinking. Who can come and redeem all this? Who's going to come and save this right now? And for us, it could be quite similar today as well, can't it? We can turn on our TV, see what happened in Nice a couple of weeks ago, what's going on in Turkey with the coup in Turkey, or shootings in the US, or the... Uh, the war in Syria and Iraq, and you can, you can look at it and you can think, where is our hope in all this? It's awful, isn't it? You know, who's going to come? Who can redeem what's going on here? And it is enough to make you weep, and that's what we see here with John. And to make it more personal, even in your own life, maybe there's a, something that you're facing at the moment at work, it's just not going so well. Maybe you're actually in physical pain this morning and you've turned up and you think, there's got to be more to this. There's got to be more what's going on in my life at the moment. Because without a hero, without a rescuer, this is as good as it gets. Who is worthy? Who can action the plan? We're not worthy to open that scroll. They were looking around in heaven Who is worthy to open this scroll? At the time John was writing this, there'd have been many people that he knew well that would have gone to glory. Think about his other 11 disciples that would have joined him. He'll have known his Bible well. He'll have known that Mary, the mother of Jesus, could have been in this scene in heaven. We could have had Abraham, David, Joshua, Moses, all of these big heroes in the Bible could have been here. And they were looking around and they couldn't find a single person who was worthy to open the scroll. Absolutely no one. Heaven and the entire universe Holds its breath. Right, let's keep reading. We come back to Revelation. We're going to read from Revelation 5 now right through to the end. That's verse 14. So starting in Revelation 5, it says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Saying in a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing or power, as it says in the NIV. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Yes! All of a sudden, we find our hero, and the praise that was in Revelation 4 erupts again in Revelation 5. And it's verse 5 of of Revelation 5 that's the game changer, isn't it? Where the elder points out the, the one, that one hero, the one who is worthy to open the scroll, we found him. And it's Jesus. This is Jesus, okay? And the elder uses two names for Jesus. Firstly, he calls him the lion of the tribe of Judah. And secondly, he calls him the root of David. And they're two things that very clearly point him out to be Jesus. Okay? And to understand those two descriptions of Jesus, we need a little bit of Old Testament history. So bear with me a second whilst I dive into the Old Testament and tell you a little bit why they're using these two names for Jesus. So throughout the Old Testament, we're given clues as to who our hero might be. We're told that there's going to be a Messiah, a savior, somebody who's going to come and save the world. It's throughout the Old Testament we're given these clues. In Genesis, we're told that he descends from Abraham and Abraham's son Isaac and his son, uh, his son Jacob. And on his deathbed, Jacob reveals the next clue for us because Jacob had 12 sons, but said on his deathbed that it would be through his son Judah that our hero of the story would emerge, that it would come through his family line. That's in Genesis, and already we're starting to see the links. We've got somebody from Judah's tribe, the line of the tribe of Judah. We're already starting to see these links um, come together. And so the Bible continues, and we get to 1 Samuel, and in 1 Samuel 16, God appears to Samuel and says, I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. So Samuel goes off to Jesse and has a look at his sons, and he finds David. And if you know your Bible, you'll know that David becomes a big player in God's story. He becomes king of Israel. And Isaiah then goes on to prophesy that the Messiah will shoot up as the root of Jesse from the stump of Jesse and that he will reign on David's throne. In other words, he's saying he's going to be descended from David as well. So then we've got our other clue, the root of David, the line of the tribe of Judah. It's all coming through from what we read in the Old Testament. In other books, there's people like Micah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel who all talk about a Messiah who will come from David's family line. Okay. We've got so many more clues as well. I don't know if you've ever got to the portion in your Bible that's got genealogy, that's just got lists after lists of people's names and where they come from. It says, this person is the son of this person, he's the son of this person, he's the son of this person. And if we're honest, if we're really honest with ourselves, stop the recording. If we're really honest with ourselves, they're the bits that are a struggle to get through, aren't they? If you're doing your Bible in a year reading plan and you get to that bit, you're like, wow, better get a stronger coffee. I'm really going to need it this morning. Okay, it can be tough reading, but there's a reason that it's in there, and it's vital in helping us to understand the big picture. Because what was written about in the Old Testament and through all that genealogy becomes true in the New Testament. Jesus fulfills it all. He shows himself to be the one. He shows himself to be the one who is worthy. And what's more, the elder then says, he has triumphed. And those three words, he has triumphed, are amazing. Because what it points to there is Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. He has triumphed. What happened was Jesus was sent to earth. He was born of a a woman, lived 33 years, a perfect life, never sinned, always talking about and preaching about how amazing his Father in heaven was. And at the right time, he was sent to the cross. He was punished, he bled, and he died for our sins. He took the punishment that was rightfully due for us so that we might have a relationship with God forever, for eternity. Three days later, he rose again, and with it, he defeated sin and death forever. So when the elder says, he has triumphed, he's saying he has triumphed, past tense. He's done it now forever. How amazing is that? Our most amazing hero, the big picture guy from our story this morning, he has triumphed, past tense, forever. Again, this is what John Hosier says at this point. It's in his book. His triumph has been achieved through his death and resurrection, symbolized in his taking the scroll and breaking the seals. The guarantee that the kingdom will come on earth is Jesus' death and resurrection. There's another writer called Phil Moore. He writes some amazing books that help to give us understanding about the Bible. Uh, He was also at West Point a couple of years ago, if you were there. And Phil Moore said this about this scene. This scene is the foundation of the gospel. It is only when we pass through the weeping of Revelation verses 1 to 4, 5, verse 1 to 4, that we can enjoy the sweet rejoicing of Revelation 5, verses 5 to 14. It's only when we understand that there is no Savior but Jesus that we can truly rejoice in Jesus, the Savior. That's what's going on here in Revelation 5. Now, recently we've been singing a song at 502 called Rejoice. And I love singing that song. We sang it a couple of weeks ago, and it's full of truth about Jesus. And some of the lines in that song include, He's turned tragedy to triumph. He's turned agony to praise. And this is it. In this moment, that's what we're talking about. He took that pause, that pause that we all experienced this morning when we stopped. He took that pause in heaven and turned it into triumphant praise. And if we truly understand the implications of what's going on in Revelation 5, it should cause us to worship as well. Heaven erupts with praise at the realization of who Jesus truly is, what he has done, what he continues to do, and what he's going to be doing forever. He is totally, totally worthy of our praise. Now, this passage uses another description of Jesus that I wanted to quickly talk through as well, because as we read Revelation 5, it also calls him the lamb who was slain. You might have seen it said, there was a, we saw a lamb standing before the throne. There was that lamb who was slain. And... Revelation actually uses that that word lamb 29 times as a description for Jesus. 29 times we find out that Jesus is the lamb. And again, to understand that, I'm going to quickly take you back to the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, God had his people. And those people, in order to uh, remain in God's good books, had to give sacrifices, Okay to God. And they were often blood sacrifices and they were given as temporary sacrifices. Books like Leviticus go into great details talking about what sacrifices and what animals are needed for what circumstances and what situations. And it's all about having those sacrifices to make a temporary atonement for your sin, to make a temporary atonement for what you've done wrong. That's what happened in the Old Testament. But also in the Old Testament, we were told about one who would come, who would take away that punishment permanently, There would be no need for these temporary atonements because somebody would come and do it permanently forever for us. Okay? And that was the Old Testament. and In books like Leviticus, they even talk about lambs who would have to be sacrificed okay, for temporary atonement for what we've done wrong. If we fast forward to the New Testament and the introduction of Jesus at his baptism, John the Baptist says about him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The second he sees him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, this is him. He's here. You can read that in John 1, verse 29. The implications of Jesus' blood on the cross are massive for us. Because what Jesus did when his blood was shed, when he died and he rose again, is he took the punishment that we deserve away from us forever. No more temporary sacrifices, no more temporary atonements, because Jesus has done it once and for all. He has triumphed forever. On the cross, he actually said the words, it is finished. And when he said those words, he didn't mean it is finished for now, or it's finished for the next five minutes, or it's finished for five years, and then we're all going to have to go and do it again. He meant it is finished, done forever, triumphed, past tense. That's our amazing hero of the story, okay? And that's why it says in Revelation 5, he was slain, and with his blood, he purchased men for God. When it says men there, that's you and me. This is our amazing hero of the story. The problem comes when we don't truly believe it. And it might be that you're here this morning and you genuinely don't believe a lot of this stuff that I've been talking about. And, and that's okay. It's a, it's a hard thing to get your head around and to understand. And if you're a Christian here, it might be that actually you know this stuff. I'm saying it and you're thinking, yeah, I know Jesus died for my sins. But actually, in the moment, you don't truly believe it. You don't truly trust in it. You actually think that you're going through something or you've done something that's so bad that Jesus really isn't going to forgive me this time. This is something that I've, I've done. This is so bad that. Actually, the cross isn't good enough for what I've done wrong. And that is rubbish. <laughs> Frankly, rubbish, because Jesus has triumphed once and for all. It is finished, and that means he's triumphed over personal sin. It means this morning you can stand here, and no matter what you've done wrong, you can know that Jesus and his sacrifice was good enough Good enough to take the punishment so that you might be free to have a relationship with God now and forever. That's what it means. It means that when somebody else hurts you, Jesus' death and resurrection was good enough to atone for what they've done wrong as well. So you don't have to worry about what they've done wrong to hurt you because Jesus has got it covered. This has massive implications for us. And these verses allow us to walk through the highs and lows of this life, knowing that Jesus is always in control. End of story. Life as a Christian's not without pain. Even this morning, there might be some people who have come and they're just like, uh, Nathaniel, I just don't feel very triumphant this morning. I just, I'm not where you're at with this. I just feel rubbish. I just feel beaten by life. And actually, you know, we won't be without those difficulties and circumstances whilst we're here. But we have a guarantee. We've got a guarantee that Jesus has triumphed. So that we can know God now and that we can experience him fully in heaven forever. And that's something for us to hold on to through these highs and lows. And it helps us to understand these awful circumstances in Nice as well. Because we won't be without them whilst we're living in this fallen world. Okay, Things are going to go wrong. We live where people do wrong, bad things all the time. But Jesus is no less triumphant because of them. And that's important to understand this morning. He is exacting God's plan that was written on that scroll to make a people for God, that's you and me, to be with him forever. To bring his ultimate judgment and establish his rule on earth for all time. That means one day heaven and earth are going to be joined together, totally perfect, no hurt, pain, wrongdoing, whatever, forever. That's what these verses mean. So it's good news in the temporary right now. It might not sound like it, but this is something for us to hold on to. He has triumphed, and this is great news for us. So where are you with it today? Do you feel triumphant, or do you feel broken by sin or by circumstance? Do you feel truly forgiven by God this morning, or are you stuck thinking that his blood can't cover you? If the answer to any of those questions is yes, then I urge you, please do keep listening. Because the implications for us are so massive. Jesus is the perfect lamb who was slain, the perfect savior whose, whose sacrifice was good enough once and for all, and it gives us freedom from sin and from fear this morning. Life isn't perfect now or tomorrow, but we worship a perfect God, and his promise is that you are his people, you will be with him, and he will establish his kingdom, and no act of terrorism, no power, no hurt, no prime minister or president will ever topple his eternal rule. And this is what we triumph in this morning. When it says he has triumphed, this is what we triumph in. This is as true as it gets. And when we understand this, and when the guys in Revelation truly saw Jesus for who he was, heaven erupted with praise again. And that's what we read. Heaven just erupted with praise. Because those in heaven, they got the gravity of that moment. They understood, actually, there's only one person. There's only one big picture guy, one hero of our story, who is worthy enough to take that plan to take that scroll and put it into action for us. And we know who he is. We know who he is. He's Jesus. They call him worthy. If you read Revelation 5, they call him worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and praise. He is worthy of all of that this morning. In response to Jesus, the one who is worthy, our hero of the story, millions of angels and every creature on heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, everything worships God. They give glory to God. And that's why we do what we do on a Sunday morning as well. If you've turned up here and you've only been coming for a few weeks, or this is kind of your you're quite new to church life, then the sight of a bunch of people standing together and singing on a Sunday morning could be quite weird, especially when Dan makes us all jump and hop, right? It could be quite weird. But there's a reason we do it. We do it in response to Jesus. We do it in response to truly knowing the implications of what's going on here in Revelation 5. Because when we know Jesus personally, when we have that relationship with him, when we see how good he is to us, when we see the way he blesses us, when we read our Bibles, when we understand the true implication of what Jesus did on the cross, it causes us to worship. And that's why we stand and that's why we sing. We give glory to God for who he is and what he's done. And we stand together and we sing. And personally, I absolutely love doing it. Um, As John mentioned, if you come down to 502, you'll quite often find me with a guitar in my hand helping to lead some of the songs. And I don't do it because I like playing the guitar, and I don't do it because I like standing on a stage. I do it because I just love giving praise and worship to God, because I think he is just so worthy of our praise. And that is what's going on here. We give glory to God for everything that he's done. We worship Jesus as the Lion of Judah, the Lamb that was slain, our saviour, our hero. And that's what we do. Matt Redmond um, is a worship leader who writes a lot of the songs that we sing on a Sunday morning, and he has written a lot of really helpful things about worship as well. And this is one such thing. He said, Each time we gather together in congregational worship like we have done this morning, we don't just journey to a church building, we journey before the very throne of God. To lose sight of this is to lose sight of the majestic in worship. Every kingdom has a king, and every king has a throne. And the kingdom of God is no exception. He is the king above all kings, and he has the throne above all thrones. There is no higher seat of authority, power, and splendor in the whole universe. The elders bow low there, the angels encircle it, and the whole host of heaven arrange themselves around it. One day, a countless multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue will gather there. Yes, when we truly face up to the glory of God, we'll find ourselves face down in worship. The implications of what Jesus has done for us are so big that when we truly stand up to it, when we truly face up to the glory of God, we find ourselves face down in worship. And we're going to come back to worship in just a minute. And when we do, we're going to be joining with Christians from around the world, multitudes of people giving glory to God. One of the things that Matt's Matt's words helpfully here points out for us is that we are part of something much bigger than the confines of these four walls this morning. When we stand and sing, we're not just standing and singing together. We're standing and joining with Christians from around the world. We're standing and joining with multitudes in heaven, giving glory to the one who rightly deserves our praise now and forever. Isn't it amazing? So how do we respond this morning to what we see in Revelation 5? Well, I think there's only one way that we can respond. And actually, if you truly understand what's happened here, if you have a true understanding of what Jesus has done, specifically for you, for that punishment that he took on the cross, specifically for each individual one of you this morning. It should cause praise to well up inside you. We can't remain unaffected by the sheer weight of what is written in Revelation 5. And a true understanding of the gospel, a true understanding of who Jesus is, his sacrifice, that he turned tragedy to triumph, that he turned agony to praise, should cause us to want to praise as well this morning. He was the only one worthy to open that scroll. The one person that this whole story, Genesis to Revelation, is all about. And he will be ruling at his father's right hand forever. What an amazing hero. So as we come back, Dan's going to lead us into some songs. And just listen to the words. Let those words wash over you. They're full of truth about who Jesus is. They're full of truth that help us give glory and praise to God. And if you've been listening to this this morning and you've never experienced a hero like this, if you've never been introduced to Jesus, then we would love to tell you more about him this morning. So why don't you come join us now as we sing, why don't you come and sing with us, maybe even sing for the first time, give praise to God, and then John and Vicky, Dan and Hannah and plenty of others are going to be available at the end, come and talk to somebody because we would love to tell you more about this Jesus that we worship and why we think he is so amazing. Let me pray.